Hey everyone, welcome to A Millennial Learns with me, Abby Rancor. This podcast is a place to learn about faith, theology, politics, history, and some fun random things along the way. Let's dive in. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of The Millennial Learns. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for listening. This week we are going to do another kind of Catholic Protestant theological discussion sort of thing. Um, It's going to be a little bit different than some of my other ones, just because this one is more of a like researching the history of saints and how they're chosen, how they are, you know, canonized into being an actual saint. So it's more of like a procedural historical lesson about something in the Catholic church. Um, But I will touch on kind of what my thoughts on saints in general are, as well as like what Protestants think of saints and stuff like that. So, we are going to get right into it. Basically, if you're new to the podcast, I will just quickly explain here that I was raised Catholic technically, but there were kind of a subset of beliefs in the Catholic church that my parents didn't really subscribe to, um, purgatory being one of those, and praying to saints. Now, Catholics argue that you're not really praying to saints in the fact that you're not saying like, saint blah, 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 please heal me. You're asking the saint to intercede on behalf of you to God. So it's not like they're worshiping the saints or praying for them for healing. They're just an intercessor, similar to how Jesus is an intercessor and he talks about being an intercessor to God. That's what they think saints can also do. So with that being said, saints are very important in the Catholic church because of this intercession um, ability that they have. So I saw a website that was, I think from the United States, like Bishops Association said, all Christians are called to be saints. Saints are persons in heaven, officially canonized or not, who lived heroically virtuous lives, offered their life for others, or were martyred for the faith, and who are worthy of imitation. So the goal, obviously, is to live a virtuous life that aligns with the faith. And so the saints are examples of a life that you want to live. So even beyond the intercessing ability, they're also good to look back on and show their lives and how they live their lives for God. And they're good examples in our life, which I definitely agree with. I think it is definitely good to look at history and people who kind of did it right. So that is kind of the two roles of saints. One is just as an example of virtue and the other one is the intercessing um, ability. So what I'm going to explore in this podcast is the kind of official canonization process because I know that there are saints and I know that there is some sort of formal way that a saint had to get accepted into sainthood. Um, Because like when Pope John Paul II died, so many people loved him that uh, they wanted and they wanted him to become a saint and they knew that he was going to become a saint pretty quickly. So I know there's some sort of formal thing, but I didn't really know anything about what that process was. So what are the formal requirements for someone to be considered a saint? So there's three steps in this process. You have to give be given titles kind of as the process continues all the way to full sainthood canonization. And so the first step is to be considered venerable. And being venerable is a title that's given to someone who is deceased that is formally recognized by the Pope as living a very, very virtuous life, or they were martyred for the faith. So anyone can be venerable as long as there's, and I'll talk more about the like cases that people have to put together, but basically like a local bishop will 
collect things that um, are evidence of their very virtuous life. Eventually that gets up to the Pope and they will formally recognize someone as being venerable. So it just means that you're basically an example to live by um, and your life should be an example to others. The next step in that is blessed. So when someone is venerable, people can pray and ask that venerable person to intercede on behalf of them for something. So let's say you have like brain cancer and you know that someone was considered venerable and recognized as a venerable venerable person. You can pray and ask them to intercede for you that your brain cancer would go away and that God would heal your your brain cancer. If you're brain cancer goes away and it can be proved to be a miracle that there's like no medical explanation. That is a miracle that can be attributed to the venerable person. And once they have a miracle that is substantiated or proven by the Vatican, um, the Pope can then consider them blessed. So the other important um, thing with blessed is that martyrs do not have to have a miracle to be considered blessed. It's just um, kind of more evidence is gathered about how good their life was and how honorable they were and virtuous and that they really represented the faith well and their martyrdom. So you don't have to have a miracle to be blessed if you were martyred. Okay, then after blessed, then you then a person can then get to the title of saint, which is like full sainthood. That's going to be the last kind of phase of this process. Um, so you need an additional miracle after beatification, which beatification just means you get the title of blessed. So if a person is blessed, they need another miracle that's been, um, proven by the Vatican that was attributed to them in order to then become a full saint. Um, the Pope can waive the like time requirements. So you're supposed to only be start the process five years after death. The Pope can waive requirements like that, but this is a standard rule that um, you need five years after you die to start this process, and then you need a second miracle after beatification in order to become a saint. So even though martyrs did not need to have a miracle before they became blessed, they do need a miracle before they are labeled a saint. So every saint has had a miracle or two attributed to them. It used to be three miracles, but it was moved to two miracles. So that is kind of the formal process, a very, very high level of the formal process. But I was researching how this even really became a process because it didn't seem like it was always that strict. And obviously things can change because um, it was moved from three miracles to two. So it sounds like sometimes they change. So I was wondering how the development of these, um, of this process came to be. And basically in the first five centuries of the church, there was no formal process. So this says from, you know, from the first five centuries, people would just say, I think this person's very honorable. I think they should be a saint. And the Pope or the bishops could just declare them a saint. There was not really anything super formal about it. So, but then from the sixth century to the 12th century, the local bishop would have to vouch for the person to become a saint. So they would not only need just like not anyone could become a saint, the local bishop had to know the person that had deceased. And then they had to go to the Pope telling them that they supported the decision of becoming a saint. So that was from the 6th century to the 12th century. But in that time, in the 10th century, the bishop had to actually start collecting eyewitness testimonies of people who knew the candidate personally and had witnessed miracles. Then he had to write a summary of that person and of his 
his or her good life for the Pope. So he would then bring that to the Pope and that would get approved. And the first case of this happening was in the year 993. So um, right in the, in the end of the 10th century there. So it continued like that for a long time, um, for about 600 years almost. And Pope Sixtus V, which is kind of a funny name. Um, he reorganized the Roman Curia in 1588 and he established something called the Congregation for Sacred Rites. So I read this sentence and I did not know what a Roman Curia was. <laughs> so I looked that one up too. A Roman, The Roman Curia is the official body that governs the church. So it's like the central government of the Catholic Church. And they kind of organize like the different departments almost. I don't want to say departments. It sounds like like a department store, but um, there's different branches of government of the Catholic Church, and he set up the Congregation for Sacred Rights, which would help basically review candidates that people wanted to become saints, and so it was way less work on the Pope to have to review all these. There was now like a board to review them. So the process from there, after that reorganization of the Roman Curia, the process stayed the same between that time in 1588 and 1917. But in 1917, the Universal Code of Canon Law was put in place. I also didn't know anything about what this meant. Some of these articles about Catholicism, because it's so rooted in Latin, they use so many Latin words that I literally don't know what they're talking about. Like I have such a hard time decoding the article. There's some that have definitely dumbed it down to like translate everything, but there's a lot that just go and say the Latin. So it takes a little bit actually to understand fully what's going on. So um, I didn't know what the universal code of canon law was, but basically there are 145 new canons that were put in place in 1917 that basically outline how someone can be canonized as a saint. So this is the first time when you had to have an Episcopal process and an apostolic process. So the Episcopal process means that a bishop has to verify the reputation. It's kind of like the same process that we talked about earlier. The bishop verifies their reputation. They make sure that there's like a biography and a summary. They have to collect eyewitnesses and review any person's works or any writings about that person. The bishop then forwards it to the Congregation for Sacred Rites, which this is when the apostolic process starts. So the apostolic process looks like the Congregation of Sacred Rites basically takes that information that was forwarded by the local bishop and reviews the evidence submitted, collects more evidence where they need to, studies the case, and investigates miracles. Once they feel good about that this person should be a saint, they forward that to the Pope for approval. So it's kind of like broken up into the local domain and then it's like the full, you know, Vatican level. It's kind of a higher level. And then it goes to the Pope. So I think it's just so that um, not any one person is overwhelmed by the process of having to do so much. It breaks it up by levels. Um, and then at any point, if they feel that the person should not be a saint, they can... Um, just not forward it to the Pope or not forward it to the apostolic process. Okay, so let's break down these phases a little bit more. So in 1983, the law changed slightly. Um, the Code of Canon Law was passed, which is still in use today. And the process is is pretty much the same. There were some slight changes, but um, it stayed the same until today. So we're going to go in depth and look at how that happens, how someone becomes a saint today. So the first phase of this is examining the life of the
the candidate. So five years, like I was talking about a little bit earlier, five years must pass between the death and when a case or cause is opened. This provide They do this because they don't want anyone to be kind of swayed by the emotion of someone dying. They want to give it a, a little bit of time um, so that they can have more objectivity and have the emotions pass a little bit more. Because if you do it right away and you're so sad that someone died, for example, Pope John Paul II, people were destroyed that he died. And if they were in the state of mind that it's just all about emotion and stuff, it would have been very easy to just pass him along as a saint super, super quickly and have less objectivity about it. So they do that to just make sure everyone's kind of on the same page and everything's been a little bit calmed since the death of the person, of the candidate. Then um, the, the bishop of the diocese where the person died has to start the investigation. So it's very structured as to who needs to open this up. It can be requested. Um, so there's a petitioner, which could be like a bishop, a religious order, or an association of the person who died could ask and act as a petitioner and ask that bishop to start. But the person that has to investigate is the bishop of the diocese that the person died. So then the bishop has to kind of open the investigation. So he starts consulting with people who knew the person and it's like the collecting eyewitness accounts sort of thing. So they go and talk to people who knew them. They create a tribunal to investigate the martyrdom or the candidate's life. So it's not just the bishop. Um, the bishop is a part of this, but they also he also creates a sort of, again, like a board to review this. Um, so this investigation kind of gathers both those witnesses and any documents about the person's life. If they wrote something or if something was written about them, they they gather as many documents and pieces of evidence of their life as possible. Okay, so that tribunal decides whether the person, whether they agree the person should be a saint or not. If they choose that they should become a saint, they forward that to the Congregation of Causes of Saints. So I think this 1983 law really moved it from being just a local bishop that decides and forwards it to a full tribunal. So again, it's like breaking up the workload of just the bishop versus uh you know the bishop and some peers so then a so then the positio positio um is prepared which that is basically a summary of the documents and evidence that the tribunal has just reviewed um to show and prove that the person showed his heroic virtue or their martyrdom um the positio is then reviewed by nine theologians who then vote on if the person should or should not be a saint. If the majority says yes, it's then passed on to cardinals and bishops. So there's a whole chain that it goes up now. The cardinals and bishop then vote. If they say yes, the info is then presented to the Pope. So if the Pope approves, he then authorizes the congregation to draft a decree. And he basically decrees that someone is venerable or blessed. And again, this can only be you can only be blessed at this stage if you were a martyr. So you could be venerable or blessed, but only the martyrs can be blessed at this point. Um, then we have beatification. Again, this is when someone becomes blessed. This is when a miracle has to be attributed to the intercession of the person that is venerable. It has to be verified after death and it is proven through an investigation so this one takes a little bit longer because you have to prove a miracle has happened first you have to wait for the miracle then you have to go 
like verify that the miracle happened. Um, and then there's a similar investigation process. Once a miracle has happened, they submit all the um, evidence for it. Basically, the same investigation process happens where it goes through, I'm, I think, the local bishop and then to the congregation and then eventually to the pope. So it's very similar in that stage. And it, when the investigation is concluded, it can be decreed and the pope will grant beatification. And then canonization is the exact same as beatification. It just is another miracle. So you're essentially waiting for another miracle at that point and then proving the miracle. And then the whole investigation happens again, and then you can be declared a saint. So then that brought me naturally to the question of how are these miracles proven? Because it's very hard to prove miracles. And I feel like it could be very uh, fishy almost if if you're just saying like, okay, we're waiting on a miracle and then anything can kind of be considered a miracle. But I was pleasantly surprised at how they actually, like their requirements for a miracle. So they said in order to be a saint, like the easiest ones to prove and verify are medical miracles. So about, so almost all miracles that someone becomes a saint because of are medical. They said 99.9% are medical miracles for sainthood because it's the easiest to, to prove. So the requirements are they need to be spontaneous, instantaneous, and have complete healing. And then in addition to that, the doctors have to be on record saying that they don't have any natural explanation of what happened. So, for example, if a woman had breast cancer and was cured, it would not qualify if the doctor said, you only have a 10% chance to live. Because there's a 10% chance that doesn't prove that it was a miracle, it just proves that she got lucky, really. So, the doctor would have to give them a complete terminal um, prognosis and say, you have a 0% chance to live in like X amount of time. Um, so if your breast cancer was so bad, you have a 0% chance to live like in five years or whatever. Um, cause there's so much breast cancer. That's where it could apply to. So if it's completely terminal prognosis, and then she prayed to a person that was, you know, venerable or blessed. Um, and then her cancer was completely healed. The doctor went and looked and there was no signs of breast cancer and said, we don't have an explanation for why there would be no breast cancer, that could be considered a confirmed miracle. It can also only be confirmed if the healed person only prayed to one saint, or I guess one venerable person or one candidate, I guess. So if you're praying to like Mary, Joseph, and and someone who is venerable, even if she was completely and instantaneously healed, you could not count that as a miracle attributed to the person who was a venerable because you don't know which saint interceded for you or which one it could be attributed to. So it also is only um, true or it can only be verified and counted as a miracle for that saint if the person only asked one saint or one candidate to um, intercede for them. Um, so Pope John Paul II, obviously was the, the last, um, Pope, his two miracles that confirmed him into being a saint was in 2010, there was a confirmed miracle where a French nun was healed from Parkinson's 
completely healed and the doctor said that there was no explanation. And then in 2013, there was a confirmed miracle that was attributed to him where a confirmed brain injury healed a woman in Costa Rica. So those were his two. One was for beatification and one was for being a saint. Um, I also saw in part of this article that the Catholic Church really now places more of an emphasis on the virtue of their life and the holiness of their life over the miracles that they have performed. So sometimes the Pope can waive um, the requirements of miracles having to be performed, and they do that sometimes because the emphasis is more more shifted on their holiness and their um, the way they conducted themselves in their life as opposed to what miracles are taking place after they have died. So that's why part of the reason why John Paul II reduced the number of miracles required from three to two because they wanted to place the emphasis more on their life and not the miracles. This is a little bit, it's not off topic, it still has to do with miracles, but I did, my, one of my friends who is Catholic, actually Francesca, because she was on the podcast before, if you haven't listened to that episode, go listen to it. It's called Thoughts of a Catholic Girl. She runs a blog. She's been really helpful in like explaining more of what Catholics believe and stuff like that, but she introduced me to all of these Eucharistic miracles that have happened that are so intriguing to me. It's crazy. So, um, if you don't know, or if you're unaware of the Catholic church, they believe that the Eucharist, like when you get communion and they say, this is my bread or this is my body and this is my blood, that it truly is the body and blood of Jesus Christ himself. So, um, there have been all these accounts of, the bread and wine transforming into what like is real flesh and blood. So, uh, for what, for example, in 750 AD, the bread and wine, uh, when someone was doing a mass, when a priest was doing a mass, um, transformed into what appeared to be flesh and blood in 1970, this was all preserved. And in 1970, the World Health Organization, the WHO, ran tests on the remains of it and said that it was indeed human blood. Like, they didn't um, tell the WHO before it got tested where it came from. And they said, yes, this is fresh human blood. It's AB type. It's AB blood type. And it has the same protein distribution as fresh blood. And then the host, they said, is human muscular striated tissue of the heart. And that arteries, veins, branch of the vagus nerve, and um, adipose tissue were identified. I don't really know what that means. But they basically identified all these parts of an actual human heart. Um, and they identified it. It said the WHO and the UN published results in 1976 saying science aware of its limits has come to a halt face to face with the impossibility of giving an explanation. So they basically could not explain why a Catholic host, a Eucharist was showing fresh blood samples of type AB. And this is interesting because there's a lot of these. There's one in Um, Buenos Aires, Argentina in 1992 and in 1996, where a lot of times if you drop a Eucharist, like if you drop a piece of the bread, you're supposed to just put it in water and let it dissolve. Um, So a lot of priests will just put it in the, in the water, let it dissolve, and then put it in the tabernacle um, in order to like break down. And then the next week they clean it out. Well, in both of those years, 1992 and 1996, when they opened the tabernacle a week later, it hadn't dissolved. And it had red on it. It turned into like a blood-like 
substance. Both of these were then taken to the Vatican and they confirmed that that was blood. In 2006, uh, during a retreat, there was a religious sister, it says, who was distributing communion and looked down and noticed that one of the Eucharist was bleeding. Um, in 2008 in Poland, again, a consecrated host fell to the ground during communion. They put it in water, locked it in a tabernacle to dissolve, and a week later there was red on the dissolve, or there was red on the host and the host had not dissolved. So, um, it's all pretty consistent. There's a lot of these ones that sound very consistent and every single one of these that has been tested, like in a lab comes back with the same AB blood type and the same, um, muscles and stuff of the heart tissue. And they all say that they are fresh, like fresh blood and fresh, um, human flesh. And yeah, it's crazy. They all come back with the same blood type and the same section of like the heart muscles. So I think that's cool. I definitely believe in miracles, especially if it's like that and it's pretty consistent. And there's been a lot of like studies about it that's been tested more. And so I tend to definitely um, believe those. Okay. So that's how you become a saint and the Eucharistic miracles. I don't think play a huge role in becoming a saint, but I just wanted to touch on those because I think they're pretty cool. Um, but once you have your two miracles or once a candidate has their two miracles that have been confirmed by the Vatican, essentially, and the Pope confirms them and they are a saint, I started to kind of wonder, like, once you're a saint, what is your role in the Catholic Church, because Catholics think that saints have this huge, a very big part. Um, saints are a large part of the Catholic Church, and so I wanted to dive more into what the impact is of once you become a saint. So, again, Catholics don't pray to saints in the sense that they're asking that saint for healing; they're asking the saint to intercede for to God for the healing for them. So, I went through um, Catholic baptism and confirmation. So when you are being confirmed in the Catholic Church, you pick a saint that resonates with you and your story and your life and all that stuff, and you are essentially looking to them to help guide you and help you model your life after their life because they are such an example of virtue and great things. Um, basically an example of how to live your life, which I think is, is good to do. I don't remember my confirmation saint, which is a little bit sad. Um, I thought that I had chosen Saint Abigail because I was 12 and I was like, I want the saint that has my name. And I think I, I called my mom right before this and I don't think she said that she doesn't think that I chose Abigail. Um, I, I probably was on the fence to choose Abigail and then my parents convinced me not to just because like choosing a saint just for your names being the same is probably not the goal of this. So anyway, when I thought that I had chosen St. Abigail, I looked her up and um, she is actually the patron saint of beekeepers. And it's funny because my husband and I have just bought a house and it's getting built over the next like year, but they just passed a thing that said we could have chickens on our property and bees. And my mom was saying like, I don't think you want bees. Like bees are kind of a kind of a pain. And I was like, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm kind of on the fence with bees if I should get them or not. So we I've talked about bees multiple times in the last like month. And turns out St. Abigail is a patron saint of beekeepers. So if we, you know, if we decide to, I might need to, might need to get some bee, uh, some bees. 
on the property. But I thought that was funny. She's also Irish and I'm obsessed with Ireland. So it would I mean, it would have been a good saint for me to choose, honestly. However, I don't think I chose her because it seemed like too shallow of a reason to pick your patron saint. So, and I'm not actually not sure who I would pick now. I guess I should probably do that. I'm going to finish recording this episode and then at the end, go back and say what patron saint I would pick now um, if I were to pick because yeah, I think that would be good. And I, but I need to do research. So I'll come back at the end. Okay. The other thing that uh, Catholics do to celebrate and recognize saints in kind of everyday life is that most saints have feast days and feast days are days where their lives are celebrated. So there's like a full calendar of Catholic days or feast days. And, um, on most of the days they have a different saint that they celebrate or remember their life. And I actually really like this. There's there's some things in the Catholic Church that I feel like are are things I definitely disagree with, but they do a very good job at recognizing like examples of the faith or you know, people in the past, like going back into the history of it and stuff like that, which I feel like Protestants in general are very bad about. I don't know any like heroes of the faith other than the ones listed in the Bible. And Catholics have this whole kind of index and like this whole recorded thing of heroes of the faith that they can look to and say like, oh, this person lived a good life and this person is kind of like me and this person, um, you know, really resonates with me. And so I'm going to look to their life as an example, not like in worship, but I think it is good to remember history and the hard things that Catholics, well, that Christians in general have, have been through. So like, if you're looking at a martyr's story, you know, it's good to look back at what they did, you know, how they stood strong in their faith. Because I feel like, especially in America, we have it so good. Like we can worship, we can gather, we can pray. We really don't face any persecution right now. Um, but a lot of people in history did. And a lot of Christians around the world do currently. So it is really, really good to know the history of what Christians have gone through in the past. So we can look at what's happening today and, you know, and recognize what's, what's going on today, but also be grateful that in America, we aren't having to go through that, which brings me just to, I just want to talk about really quick. There are things that are happening in the world that I've read about on the news just kind of recently that are so like appalling. And I've talked about this like in my Bible study before, but it makes me feel very like, I don't know how to help is the thing. I like problems that I can solve. And I I read on the news, like in China, Christians are getting like kidnapped into these facilities and being tortured if they don't renounce their faith. Okay. That is obviously extreme persecution. I think it's terrible. I also have no idea what I can do as a person in the United States to do anything about that. Like it's kind of, it's frustrating. Um, there's also like the Uyghur Muslims in China are also getting extremely persecuted. And I think that's completely wrong as well. And I don't know. It's good to see these examples of people who have been martyred as well, but it's just terrible what's going on right now. And 
I think more people need to be talking, talking about it. But um, anyway, not to put a downer on this, but I think that is an important issue. Like we need to be very aware of Christians and I mean, people of any, any faith that are being persecuted around the world. Cause there's a lot of that going on and it's so easy to just put blinders on here and ignore it and like focus on the minuscule problems of what we're facing today. And um, yeah, there's a lot of things happening to people of faith around the world. But anyway, um, back to the regularly scheduled podcast. Um, I do think it's good to remember heroes in the faith. I think Catholics do a very good job at that. So um, a few of the feast days that you might know of are Valentine's Day, which is the feast day of St. Valentine, um, and St. Patrick's Day, which is a feast of St. Patrick, which I guess, I mean, like, I guess I knew that these were saints, um, cause St. Patrick's day was clearly a saint, but it's been so commercialized and like, it's just been made into a huge party. Like St. Patrick's day is all about drinking green beer and, you know, pinching someone about not wearing green and stuff like that, that I, you kind of forget that this is an actual feast day of a saint. So, um, St. Patrick died on March 17th, which is why, um, his feast day is March 17th and why we celebrate St. Patrick's day. Um, on that day, he was the first Bishop of Ireland and he is the patron saint of Ireland. Valentine's day, again, super commercialized and you forget it. It's a saint, um, who is celebrating the feast day, but St. Valentine was a saint. There's very little that's known about his life, but it was agreed that he was martyred for not renouncing his faith. He is the patron saint of courtly love, which is why he's been connected to a, a holiday like Valentine's day. Um, which, cause people pray to him to find love or about finding love. And yeah, it's been very commercialized, but it is a Catholic feast day for St. Pat or for St. Valentine. Like I mentioned, they were patron saints of certain things. So St. Valentine is a patron saint of love and St. Patrick is the patron saint of Ireland. So that made me curious, I guess, but why are patrons saint? I mean, why are saints patrons of certain things? Because you've, a lot of people have heard, like, if you're um, going to buy a house or something, you put a statue of a specific saint, you bury it uh, by your house, and that's supposed to help you sell your house faster. But I was curious as to why these saints had different, um, why they were the patron saint of certain things. So the explanation that I found was that each saint, you know, they have a life story, a documentary, not a documentary, what, a biography kind of written about them when they're being submitted to sainthood. And so we have a pretty good picture of most of their lives. And the kind of main cord of what ran through their lives is usually what they're this patron saint of. So St. Patrick was um, eventually got to Ireland and became the first Bishop of Ireland. That's why he's a patron saint of Ireland. Um, so I have some examples here of what certain saints are the patron saint of, um, and a little bit about why. So St. Rita, she is the patron saint of loneliness. So you pray, you're supposed to pray to her when you are feeling very lonely. She essentially had a really, really hard life. Her, um, she got married and then he was killed. Her two sons that they were going to avenge his death. And so she actually prayed to let the sons die, um, before they committed a mortal sin of killing the people that had killed her husband. And they both got sick and died within a year. 
So she was extremely lonely because of all of that that had happened. But God continued to use her apparently in very, very good ways after all this tragedy had happened. So she's the patron saint of loneliness and, you know, someone to look to if you've had a very, very hard life. Um, St. Christopher is the patron saint of bad luck, which I don't, I don't really like, like off the bat, that seems terrible because I don't really believe in bad luck, first of all. Um, but apparently you're supposed to put him or a picture of him on your neck to, uh, for him to help you not have bad luck and as protection for those who are traveling. So St. Dimthna, I don't really know how to pronounce that, is the patron saint of anxiety, um, she was martyred as a teenager because her dad was King Damon and her mom was the queen, obviously. And uh, the queen had died and the king, King Damon, wanted her to replace her mom essentially as queen. So he was kind of sick in the head and wanted to sleep with this Saint Dimphna. Anyway, she ran away. She escaped because she had already taken an oath of celibacy and she eventually was captured when she tried to escape and was murdered by her dad. But her remains are kept at the church in Giel and people started noticing that miracles and cures of mental ailments were happening specifically at that church and they attributed it it to her remains being there. So she is the uh, patron saint of anxiety and mental disorders. St. Joseph, who is Jesus's dad, is the patron saint of unemployment. He's also the patron saint of universal church workers, carpenters, and immigrants because of his trip to Bethlehem. So he was a carpenter, he was a worker, and he was an immigrant. He lived through a lot of poverty. So any unemployment, you're supposed to pray to St. Joseph. St. Gerard is the patron saint of fertility. He was falsely accused at one point in his life, so he's also the patron saint of being falsely accused. But for the fertility part, a woman that he was basically praying with was in danger of losing her child. Like she had a lot of pains in her stomach and she thought that she was losing her child. And she picked up the handkerchief of St. Gerard, who was not a saint at the time, obviously, but her pain stopped and she did not lose the baby. So... He's the patron saint of fertility and being falsely accused. Um, and then the the last one is odd to me. Um, it's St. Michael, who is an angel. He was, first of all, he's in one of the books of the Bible that Catholics have in their Bible that we do not have, or that Protestants do not have in theirs, um, which is, I believe is Tobit. I think he helped and um, on the journey to the other city in the book of Tobit. Um, but then he also shows up later, I think in Revelation, and he helps kind of slay Satan and he's fighting against Satan and stuff. So he was actually made a saint because of that, even though he's not a human and he never walked on earth. So apparently angels can also be saints, but that's confusing because I didn't think angels could intercede for us. So I have questions about that one, but that is technically a saint. So I'm just going to wrap this up by saying how I kind of feel about saints. I guess I should have probably said this in the beginning, but my opinions on saints are, I think it's very good to remember virtuous people that live their faith. I said that before, but I really think it's good to look back at historic figures who did it right. Learning history is very important and it can definitely be an example to us in hard times or whatever to learn about people who, you know, were saved, who were transformed by God and then lived their lives for him. I think that's very good. 
However, I don't think the saints or the dead hear us in general. And this gets back to a very fundamental difference between what I believe and what the Catholic Church believes, at least at the moment, that I do not think that the dead hear us once they're dead. I think they're in heaven and they, they're they not like watching us all the time or interceding. I believe Jesus is the only intercessor we have to the Father. So if we pray to Jesus, Jesus will be intercessing or on our behalf to God. I do not believe that saints can intercess for, on behalf of us. But again, the verses that you find that really back that up are in the seven books that Catholics have in their Bible that Protestants do not have. So, I mean, it goes back to a deeper rooted issue, but currently I don't think that intercession or asking saints for intercession does anything because I think that Jesus is the only intercessor and that saints don't hear us when they're dead. Like the, the dead don't hear us. Um, so if you follow that line of logic, the miracles, which are great, I, I do think miracles can happen. And that like, even things like the Eucharistic miracle, I don't think that's out of the question to have, or to say that the Eucharist turned into the body and blood of Jesus, even if you think that it's originally a symbol. So like Catholics say that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Jesus and then say, well, yeah, it's a great miracle that the host and the, the, you know, the bread and wine actually physically turned into human flesh and blood. I think you can say that that's a miracle either way. So like if I'm a Protestant and I think that the Eucharist is a symbol of Jesus body and blood, and then it all of a sudden turns into the body and blood. I think that's a miracle and that's great. And that can be attributed to God. Um, so there's another difference. I don't really think that the Eucharist is the body and blood. I think it's a symbol of the body and blood. And then the other miracles, which again, I think are great, can be verified. Like the medical ones for sure seem way more verifiable. And I, I do believe in those. Um, those can be contributed to God and not necessarily the saints. Um, so, I mean, I know that that's, I mean, that's a very fundamental difference between Catholics and Protestants. So, as of right now, it could always change. But as of right now, I those are my thoughts on the saints that they do not um, intercede for us. The other thing I wanted to touch on a little bit is the Catholic Church's emphasis on saints. What I've always been like the most uncomfortable with in the Catholic Church is how much the saints are prayed to as opposed to Jesus. Like I feel, I feel like a lot of Catholics at least that I've seen. I mean, this is between every Catholic and God. So I can't generalize all Catholics by any means. But when I was Catholic and when I considered myself a Catholic, what I saw around me in the Catholic church really emphasized saints and really emphasized Mary in particular, which again, I think it's a great example to look up to. Mary was an amazing woman. I'm all for looking up to Mary, but you pray to Mary five times more than you pray to God. That always seemed a little odd to me. And I get that Catholics will argue that, you know, by you praying to Mary, it's going to point you to Jesus. I think that you should pray to Jesus to intercede, which I'm sure a lot of Catholics do. Um, but the importance of the saints, I feel like is a little bit overblown in proportion to the importance of Jesus and God. And the other thing I just want to sum up is that I do like, even though I don't agree with like how important the saints seem to be in the Catholic church or their role necessarily, I do think it's great to celebrate the feast days. And I want to be a little bit more aware of certain saints and their feast days, because 
I literally don't know any saints. I don't know the story of any saints. And Catholics have all this knowledge of all these saints and their life story and how um, how God delivered them. And I think it would be very, very encouraging in my own faith to hear about the stories of all these saints and then to remember them throughout the year. I think that'd be great. It's like a history lesson of people in the faith. So although I don't agree with the importance of saints or the role of them in my prayer life, I definitely want to get more into feast days. So, um, yeah, that is all I had for this week's episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. Let me know your opinions on the importance of saints or the non-importance of saints or whatever, who your patron saint is. If you're Catholic, um, I'm very interested in learning about those. So, and maybe I'll, uh, throw on who my patron saint is at the end here. If, uh, if I can have my mom go find it for my confirmation records. So anyway, that is all for this week's episode. Thanks everyone. Talk to you later. That is all for this week's episode. Thank you so, so much for listening. I hope you liked it. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening from. And I would really appreciate if you would go rate and review this podcast on the Apple store. That is going to be how we continue to grow our millennial learns family and community. So come back every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific time for a new episode and DM me any questions on Instagram. It's at a millennial learns. Go check me out. Follow me, DM me questions you have about this episode or any future topics you would like to see me dive into. Have an amazing week, everyone, and I will see you Monday. Hey, if you've made it to this point in the episode, congrats. I wanted to follow up on the confirmation saint because I said that I would try to go find it. Um, I have not found it, so I still do not know my confirmation saint. And if I were to choose a patron saint now, it would require a lot of research about a lot of different saints. So I think I'm just going to leave it there for now. I don't have a patron saint and I don't remember mine from confirmation. And maybe as I learn more about the history and the story of many saints, I will find out that I resonate with one. But for right now, I'm just leaving it at, I do not remember my confirmation saint and I don't have a patron saint. (laughs) So anyway, have a great week, everyone. Bye.